Hello, peace lovers and peacemakers. This is Sarah Jamshidi. You are listening to Peace Mindedly, a podcast show featuring peaceful bridge makers. We are in a very uneasy, stressful time right now because of coronavirus and because of what's happening around the world. I know that in uncertainty, uneasiness, and uncomfortable situations, one of the most compelling things that we can talk about, and probably the only thing that we should talk about, is peace, kindness, and compassion. So this show is about peace, kindness, and compassion, and I truly, truly appreciate that you help me spread the word about peace and kindness uh, to to your friends and my friend. Specifically today, I have a very special guest. Michelle Garrett is the principal at Ripple, a consulting company that Michelle Michelle founded about two years ago. Michelle has worked with companies, communities, and organizations who want to use peaceful means to end conflict. She has traveled to more than 30 countries in about more than 20 years as a peace researcher, peace consultant, and peace author. Making Peace with Faith, The Challenges of Religion and Peace Building is a book she co-authored and co-edited with Muhammad Abu Nimer. Michelle cares, cares about her work and about the footprint that she leaves behind. During this conversation, we are going to learn a great deal about how building peace could be possible in war-torn countries. Here I am welcoming Michelle. Hi, hi, Michelle. Hi, Sarah. Michelle, so walk me through, walk me through the work that you do. So how a community finds you and tells you, hey, Michelle, this is something that we would like to work on and help us out? It's a great question. Because in fact, if I'm playing my role correctly, it would be unusual for a community itself (laughs) to find me. (laughs) In the sense that I would rarely engage directly with individual members in a community unless I am personally embedded there over the long term. What I do typically every day is I work to support nonprofit or civil society organizations who are serving long term in those contexts, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, for example, my most recent trip was to South Sudan. It's been a few months as I've been grounded due to COVID-19, like we all have. But on that last trip to South Sudan, I worked with seven different nonprofit organizations, one international and six local, to support them in research and learning so that they could do peace building more effective in the community. And in that particular trip, I did not meet any community members outside of the nonprofits at all, Mm -hmm. right? Uh, That's not always the case, but it does give you an idea of, of my role. Mm -hmm. Right. Mm -hmm. I can be a good person to support and assist and help to equip a nonprofit or a civil society organization that's serving there long term. So walk me through. So you say Mm -hmm. support and then to program development. So what is the support? Is it educational? What do you do with uh, in relation with those with those uh, communities or, or organizations? 
It's a, it's a great question. And there are a lot of different kinds of support <laughs> that can be made available. But what I do specifically falls into about three categories. One is I facilitate collaborative processes of context analysis in order to plan strategies, right? Based on the idea that in order to develop a good strategy for building peace in a particular context, you have to understand the context, right? So we bring people, diverse people together to analyze the context and then plan what's needed. Um, Do you have an example? Um, the most recent example of that particular type of support was done three times last year in different countries in Latin America, uh, which was a joy in and of itself. But um, in Honduras, in Chiapas, in Mexico, and in Colombia last year, uh, working with two different organizations who are long-term on the ground, I supported them to bring together a very diverse group of about 25 individuals who know the context well, most of whom are in the nonprofit or civil society sector, but some of them also representing governments and businesses. And what was the context? Uh, well, the context of our work together was creating a process for them to analyze their context, right? Uh -huh. So in the case of Honduras, to spend four days <laughs> creatively analyzing and understanding together what is happening mm -hmm. in the context in Honduras, right? Mm -hmm. What are the underlying political and economic factors that are leading us to this moment in time? Uh, what are the symptoms of instability that we see? Uh, what are the underlying roots? Uh, what does this context need mm -hmm. in order to develop towards a more peaceful future? And then most importantly, how can we, meaning those people representing organizations who work day to day in that space, what can we do being really well informed by a good understanding of our own context? What can we do over the next year, five years, 10 years to make things better? Very much focused on creating a participatory collaborative space to understand the context and then plan what to do about it. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so are we talking about controlling the uh, drug dealers? Are we talking about controlling the arm deals? So, what was the con context exactly about in Honduras? In Honduras, we take in every aspect of the context that affects either turbulence or stability. And we focus that analysis on creating insights that the organizations I was working with could use for planning. Mm -hmm. Those organizations in that particular case were working uh, on humanitarian assistance mm -hmm. and community development assistance. So we looked at everything, right? We looked at history politics, economics, uh, including everything from the drug trade to farming, right, as it relates to the dynamics of stability or instability in the country. So we really create a, a big picture 
of what's happening in the context. Um, where do we think it's going in the future? What are the needs? And then how do the organizations that are present in the room use that information to plan wisely? How you help them to incorporate the peace component into the conversation? What was the peace component? In that case, it differs a bit in each case, right? Depending on what kind of support I'm providing uh, and on the context. But in that case, uh, most of the organizations present in the room were working on peace indirectly, right? So I often work with organizations that are working directly on creating and building programs to build peace. In this case, the organizations I was working with in Honduras were not so much working directly on conflict as trying to work wisely and effectively in a context where there was a lot of conflict. Mm -hmm. So they really wanted to first and foremost, wisely figure out how to carry out their humanitarian assistance and community development assistance without accidentally making the conflict worse, right? <laughs> and yes. then secondarily, how to weave peace-promoting practices into their programming. So like practices that could um, reduce inequity and marginalization between people groups in very practical ways. For example, uh, looking at who are the participants and beneficiaries in a program and making sure uh, that marginalized groups are fully included and represented. Those are some of the programmatic applications. We also um, build the peaceful relationship development into the collaborative process. In the case of that type of collaborative context analysis, if we're doing it right, there will be people in the room with dramatically different opinions about everything. <laughs> Right. And there will be people there representing each of the key identity groups in the context, right, who might be on opposing sides of tension. So we also weave mutual understanding and relationship development into the process as we're together. So here is at least my experience of the work that I've been doing as a foreign correspondent and mm -hmm. covering war. So usually the two opposing parties in the same room have no appetite whatsoever to listen to the other party. It's just they just want to talk and they just want to blame and they just want to victimize. It's just no appetite. One of the chapters that in your book is basically talking about compassionate listening mm -hmm. and talking about, but, but Michelle, it's damn difficult thing to do. It is. <laughs> it's very difficult. And especially for people who have, you know, I mean, lived through this mm -hmm. kind and this much of feeling of blame and victim and anything, whatever that is. So how do you do it? How do you, how do you, how do you do the um, uh, compassionate listening? That chapter that you're referring to uh, by my colleague, Yael Petretti, um, is one that I love because she like writes about her experience of facilitating compassionate learning processes in Israel and Palestine. Um, and it's just 
chock full of great stories. But the reason why I love it so much personally is because it challenges me <laughs> to listen compassionately in the areas where I struggle. Um, what are the areas that you struggle? Oh, well, there are probably many, but I think of, you know, our own context, my own context as an American here in the United States, which I I see through a unique lens because I lived and worked a lot of my adult life overseas. I'm a returnee <laughs> to my home culture. So I look at it through that lens and I experience a lot of grief and frustration um, when I see relationship conflicts and injustices in our own society that just don't seem to go away. Right. <laughs> Um, sometimes it just seems to be getting worse. And there is a very real tension in working in my own context between my role as a peacemaker uh, and my role as someone who also needs to promote justice, right? So it is, it is a challenge, not that the two goals are incompatible, but it's a challenge to figure out um, how to walk it out, what to do, what to say in a given moment on a daily basis. So, and in fact, Yael, the author of the chapter that you're referring to, and I've talked about this a lot, because in the discipline of compassionate listening, which is like not just a really important idea, but it's also a fully developed practice. Like you can, you can uh, learn to be a compassionate listener and you can practice this particular method with excellence as Yael does. In the compassionate listening methodology, the direct overt promotion of justice is intentionally put on the back burner in order to facilitate in the shorter term, right? Uh, mutual understanding and listening. Uh, and I respect that deeply. It's a beautiful part of the compassionate listening methodology. And yet it's not always the way that I myself operate, right? I have a bit more of a dynamic sort of interweaving of the peacemaking and the justice on a daily basis. And the place where that's hardest is uh, in my own context. So I'm going to ask you about what happened that you decided to uh, write the book and edit the book and gather the the, the articles. I'm going to ask about that. But before we go in there, and I'm losing my uh, third of thought and this particular conversation, Michelle, there are times the oppressor is just the oppressor. How do you um, deal with uh, someone who is just wants to push their own agenda forward from in a national level and have no appetite to listen to any other voice. I mean, I can just give you an example about Iran. Uh, the, the government yeah. is just so brutal. And I know that Iranian people are very peaceful because they just do not want another war and another revolution. But so what is the effective way of not only sitting back and watching, but in fact, doing things peacefully so then you can move the, the public agenda forward? I think the power of citizen activism and nonviolent resistance uh, is really immense. It's also sometimes very risky to the citizens involved, but it's what we have to do, right? So citizens working together to 
speak up, sometimes to take physical action in terms of putting their bodies in a particular location to speak up through nonviolent resistance and civil disobedience, which is in all honesty, an area in which I have not a lot of direct hands-on experience, right? Quite a bit of indirect experience, but yeah, more indirect. So just want to be honest about that. But I think really in those cases, right, where there is ongoing oppression (laughs) at the government level, the power of citizens to speak up and where necessarily where necessary to nonviolently resist is essential. There are also other pathways around policy change, policy influence, seeking to influence decision makers to change policies of the government over time. Um, And that can be done both by parties inside the country and outside the country. Working mainly with nonprofit organizations and civil society, I have more experience with citizen activism, but uh, definitely acknowledge the power of diplomacy and policy yes. change over time as well. Michelle, what intrigued you to write the book? So why you decided, I want to write a book about peace building with the faith lens? Uh, I think... Our book, Making Peace with Faith, is really uh, really an expression of what we've experienced in practice. And it's a response to the extremes that we often hear when people talk about religion and conflict and peace, right? There's one extreme that says religion is a cause, conflict. Uh, and therefore to be avoided. Uh, And there's another extreme that says religion is the best and only promoter of peace and religiously inspired peacemakers are perfect, right? (laughs) Uh, And of course, the reality is mixed, right? I and my co-editor Mohammed, all the contributors to the book, we believe strongly in faith-motivated and faith-based peace building. It's part and parcel of what we do every day, but we also recognize that it's not easy (laughs) because of the way that religious identities can get pulled in Mm -hmm. to conflict. So we really wanted to put together a book that would allow faith-based peacemakers to talk very honestly about the challenges that they experience, how they address them and how they overcome them, uh, including identity-related challenges, such as that in Yael's chapter, which you mentioned around compassionate listening. Um, So it's a type of peace building that's rooted very deeply in the identity of the peacemakers in their own ongoing formation and transformation, and rooted in the change that can take place over time and how those identities are viewed. So stay with me, Michelle. If you are on podcasts, you are listening to Peace Mindedly. The information about this program and the program that I produce is going to be available on goldtune.com. Goldtune News is a website I manage with a group of international foreign correspondents. 
We write about lifestyle and reviews on books, theater, film, movies, so forth. We write about travel and we write about uh, basically things related to the lifestyle. Peace Mindedly is a podcast under Goldtone News. So when you go to uh, Goldtone and visit this program, please do sign uh, for our for our newsletter. I guess I'm keep t- uh, telling and saying that please subscribe or please um, visit or share and so forth and so on. To just be honest with you here, it's because first we are a small independent news outlet and we are startup. So this is when I'm saying please subscribe or share or do any of those, it's trying to gain momentum for the work that we do. So thanks very much for helping us on that on that matter. I really, really, really appreciate it. The other issue is we are in the era of coronavirus. Right now, our life has been affected. There are so many people who are just dealing with this with these issues. One hundred thousand people has has died. It's, I mean, just just think. I mean, I'm just thinking about their family, their loved ones, and the, the kind of pain that many of those people are going through. So. For the response to pain, probably is not exactly pain. Response to pain might be peace, kindness, and compassion. Something that I set my my goal for this show and for this podcast. So I have a very interesting lineup for you. So next week I'm talking uh, on Tuesday. I'm talking with Anila Afzali, Executive Director for Amen American Muslim Empowerment Network, a chapter under uh, under Maps, the Muslim Association. Association of Puget Sound. And then after that, on Thursday, I'm talking to three wise moms. These women from different background and different culture decided to teach their daughters that life is tough, beautiful, and not as rosy as we see on social media. They wrote a book called Three Wise Moms, Our Lessons, Your Life. After that, after the moms on Tuesday, the following week, I'm talking with Rebecca Johnson, peace activist in nuclear disarmament treaties. So we are going to talk about probably Iran and nuclear disarmament. And on Thursday, the same week, uh, not this week, but the following week, I'm talking with uh, Sisterhood of Salam. Shalom. So th- two women from uh, Washington, D.C. and two women here in Chapter Seattle, we're going to have a discussion about how these Jewish and Muslim sisters, women, got together after 9-11 to create a space for peace and for understanding. This hour, I'm talking with Michelle Garrett. Michelle has been an avid writer. She wrote her first book dedicated to her dad when she was eight years old. If you go to her website and you go under the blog, you'll see a wealth of information about the peace stories that she has been writing and she has been blogging about. So she never stopped writing and finally she settled for writing the book Making Peace with Faith, The Challenges of Religion and Peacemaking. Michelle knows about peace and what it takes to build and make peace with an unfriendly party. So Michelle, you write 
blog and you write about peace and you explain that how peace can become personal. Can you share with us the last post that you wrote and the background story about the entry? Yes, absolutely. The writing and the blogging has come a long way since that initial effort when I was eight years old writing for my father that that booklet was about aliens from outer space. So (laughs) subject matter is very different now. The blog in particular is always a reflection on themes related to the United States, my own country, which is important for me as a person who spent most of my adult life working internationally. So the blog is really focused on the U.S. And the latest post is a story of four recent immigrants in the U.S. uh, and the challenges that they're facing under COVID-19. They're not sick, thankfully. They're perfectly healthy. But um, the other challenges that they're facing during the necessary lockdown, right, that's been put in place to stop the spread of COVID, combined uh, with a lot of dysfunction in government services and support, created a lot of challenges. Really overjoyed to call these four young women from Latin America friends, uh, and really overjoyed to be able to support their resettlement in Seattle together with a team from my church. So that's the background. uh, And we can delve into it as much or as little as you like. What do you think, Sarah? Yes. So I I love that. But I mean, I'm so much interested to know how come you become interested in focusing on peace? What happened? Oh. So what happened that you decided this is something I would like to do? Great question. Um, it started probably about 32 years ago. <laughs> I grew up in a relatively homogenous white European American small town here in Washington State in the US. So I didn't have a lot of exposure to people who were ethnically or religiously different than me. And that changed approximately near the end of high school when I started traveling, uh, first to Mexico and then to the Philippines. And as is always the case, that prompts a lot of quick, powerful paradigm shifts. And for me also, it really kind of prompted the first early recognitions of a vocation, a life calling, um, which sounds a bit odd and overly spiritual, but I believe we all have that, right? It's just the thing that we're made to do, right? The issue that we're made to work on. It was after those few trips and while processing those few trips that it just became really clear to me that what I had to be doing in life was about helping to make the relationships between people groups, uh, national groups, ethnic groups, religious groups, whatever they might be. I really had to be about trying to help make those group relationships more fair and more peaceful. But I had the idea at that time, I was around 25, and I had the idea that I was going to do that from my home base in this same geographic area in the city of Tacoma, near where we're now sitting. 
I had the idea that that was going to be my home base and I would travel a lot and I would go to many places, but I would always come back. And then an opportunity opened up in Washington, D.C. to continue on in the work of trying to <laughs> make people group relationships more just and peaceful. In this case, it was an opportunity with an organization called World Vision International, which I worked with for many years. And when I prayed about it, I felt like the spiritual part of the answer was, Michelle, you are, you don't have to take up this opportunity. It's entirely your choice. But if you choose to do it, right, it will move you closer to your vocation and it will be the most amazing adventure. You won't be the same. Right? <laughs> so I was pretty scared because um, changing my home base was not my plan. <laughs> <laughs> but I jumped in and I went, spent a couple of years in Washington, D.C., and that role with my colleagues in World Vision definitely did continue to grow and morph uh, into a more fully fledged peace building work. And, and it was a very long time before I ever got back to the Seattle Tacoma area. <laughs> so I went from Washington, D.C. to Kosovo, to the Philippines, to Singapore, working in regional roles across Asia while based in both of those locations and eventually got back to the Seattle-Tacoma about area about 10 years later. <laughs> Michelle, at the end of the program, I ask my guests to close the program for me with something meaningful about peace, about kindness and compassion. And I wanted to see what, what you have for us. Happy to. In terms of closing thoughts for today, um, it really goes back to the tension that we talked about between nurturing relationships and promoting justice. It's a false tension. <laughs> Let me unpack that for you a little bit. A podcast closing is usually upbeat, but here in the USA right now, we are in a moment of lament. George Floyd, a 46-year-old African-American security guard in Minneapolis, was killed this week in a police incident when one of the officers kneeled on his neck. This is part of our country's long repeating pattern of people of color being mistreated by predominantly white institutions. Protesters are calling for justice while city officials call for peace. My memory flashes to my own city, Seattle, in September of 2010. John T. Williams, a 50-year-old native woodcarver with a disability, was shot to death by police in the street. During a public meeting, government officials wished for peace. Many Native American community members pushed back, calling nonviolently for justice. I was listening. I share here some of their words to honor Mr. Williams, Mr. Floyd, and all of the victims. They said, no justice means no peace. Peace is not just a word to throw around. Peace, that's what everybody wants, but it's hard for me to hear that right now. It hurts me to hear that because we didn't breach the peace, it was breached for us. You say you want peace, but when you throw an ax and it hits the wall, it creates vibrations that are not peaceful in that moment. There is no peace here right now. You say you want peace, so what kind of tangible things do you have to support that? Is there peace? Yes, we all want and yearn for peace, but you must respect our civil rights. 
if you want respect, you must give respect. Amen. So who is you? Uh, in this case, the you in this statement coming from Native American community members in Seattle is the police. So community members are saying to the police, if you want us to respect you, you have to respect us as well. And that could certainly be extended to other predominantly white institutions that are running the society. Essentially a reminder that there are no shortcuts <laughs> to peace. There's no quick fix. Peace requires equity and justice. So I'm re-examining that in my own life. And I imagine some of our listeners are as well. The final statement that came from those Native American community members in that meeting in Seattle 10 years ago was this. Peace. We've got a long way to go, but I think we'll make it. Yes. In, in, in Islamic tradition, we say inshallah. Inshallah. And yes. Hope so. I hope so. <laughs> inshallah. Yes, yes, inshallah. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much, Michelle. Really appreciate uh, for being here and talking with me and uh, answering the comments and the questions. Appreciate it. Thank you so much, Sarah. It's a joy to be part of your podcast, and I'll <laughs> tune in next week as well. Sure. Thank you so much. Hoda Hafiz. Bye.